jam-packed episode coming up for you here on the podcast today. We got Tony Ferrari unpacking everything that happened in Friday night's epic draft lottery. We've got Prashant Thayer coming on from the Wings for Breakfast podcast. He breaks down everything from a Detroit Red Wings perspective, what's coming next for them. And then we got Lucas Main from Dauber Prospects coming on. He's giving us the California perspective. What happens for the Ducks now that they slipped in the lottery? What happens for the Kings now that they moved up? It's gonna be a great podcast. Hope you enjoy it. Alrighty, pleased to be joined by Dauber Prospects own the Tony Ferrari. Tony, Chaos won the draft lottery last night. How are you feeling about it? Hate it or love it? Well, I love it. And honestly, I think Gary Bettman slept like a baby last night with a smile on his face. He loves this. Yeah, absolutely. It's the NHL, they actually tried to roll out a proposal where the Red Wings could only fall down one spot in the lottery and the NHL teams themselves shot it down. So I, this is what the whole league wanted, right? Like yeah. if ever, if ever there was going to be a year where you say, Hey, we we're not going to do the lottery. We lost the last 12 games of the season where the embarrassment happens, where you get the questionable lineups and like sitting and trading goalies for stopping too many hmm. pucks and, fans rooting against their teams we lost that part of the season there's there was very little tanking that went on i don't think the red wings went into this season trying to put a winner on the ice but none of those players tried to lose and certainly they were at least trying to be competitive to rebuild that culture there so there was no tanking that took place we lost that horrible part of the season if ever you were going to eliminate the lottery this was the year but ultimately it made more sense to involve all these teams and keep the lottery in place. Luck's going to be a factor in this stuff anyway. And as for the pain that these fans are feeling, I totally get it. I'm an Oilers fan, so I've won more lotteries than I've lost. But at the same time, well, last night before the lottery, I noticed a hornet buzzing around inside my house. And then I lost track of it while I was going to grab the fly swatter. And I sat there for like an hour waiting for the lottery, but also waiting for this hornet to pop back up and maybe sting me. And all I could think of is, well, this is how Red Wings and Senators fans are feeling right now. Yeah, like that's, that's got to be the exact feeling because like I was watching a live stream of the Wing Wheel podcast last night, kind of getting ready for the lottery and waiting for their reactions to everything. And as soon as, as soon as Detroit kind of got revealed a little bit earlier on that they weren't getting the first or like they weren't getting the top three pick, the all three guys from the lottery were just, or from the broadcast were just not happy campers to say the least. Like they, they were pretty angry and I feel their pain. Um, I, I'm a Leafs fan. I'm 50, 50 on lotteries in, in reality with between McDavid and Matthews. I'm pretty happy with, McD- with Matthew. Sorry, I'm not going to complain about it, but I definitely remember that pain of of right after McDavid's lottery and it came out that Toronto was one ball away from getting McDavid, and they actually had the best odds going into the final ball. So I, I understand their pain to an extent, but at the same time, I, I can't really say I do because they've done it for seven, eight years in a row. It feels like now, ever since they've started missing the playoffs. 
Yeah, every single year Detroit has gotten kicked down the draft order and it's putting them into that that unfortunate middle ground in and around those picks like five through ten where you don't nearly get the same value as you do with a top five pick. So they're at four. I don't know. It sounds like people think that there are eight excellent players in this draft. So they're probably going to get one of those. And if things break right, maybe they get the best one. Uh, A lot of people have referenced the 2017 draft where Colorado had a season about as dismal as what the Red Wings had. They lost out on the lottery, fell down to four, and then they got Kale McCarr and franchise changer. Oh, for sure. And, and I mean, I've seen a lot of Red Wings fans kind of trying to console themselves and go, well, remember 83, we drafted Iserman at four. And, and I mean, don't get me wrong. I hope they draft their, their new Iserman. I hope whether it's Jutzel or, or Lucas Raymond or Marco Rossi, whoever they end up getting, they're going to get a good player. And, and I hope he does turn out to be as good as, as Iserman because Iserman was amazing to watch. I'm not going to ever complain about watching a guy like that. Uh, they, they did get lucky this in terms of the fact that this is the best year in, a, in the last few to fall back to four. Um, I, I think guys like Raymond Stutzel, even Rossi would be top two picks in, in most drafts. Um, so they're getting a, They're getting a good player, but yeah, it's got to burn not to be really have that shot at Lafreniere or Byfield. So you don't think there's any chance Byfield by some miracle falls down to four? Oh, I, I have, I can see him maybe falling down to three. Four would be if, like, L.A. decides, you know what, we want to get Drysdale at two, and then at three, Ottawa goes, you know what, we like Tim Stutzel. Then, then maybe Byfield's there, but that's really the only scenario I see it because, I, I, to me, Byfield's the, the closest guy to Lafreniere in terms of upside, and I, I've said that all year. Like, he, to me, he, Byfield's closer to number one than he is number three, but – I definitely see the cons- like the raw concerns that people have with him. So if he does fall, then Detroit's going to be partying and I might even try to cross the border to go party with them. Cause I'm right across the river. So. Oh, that would be uh, an epic one to attend. Um, what do you say to the folks who think that this lottery was rigged by the NHL? Well, what I say to that is if Montreal ends up winning the, the top pick, then yeah, it is rigged. But outside of – no, in reality, I don't think it's rigged. I think the NHL kind of set up a goofy system, and in their minds they were like, you know what, there's no way that one of these teams is going to win the first pick. I think this is the first time since they've changed the lottery that a team outside of the top seven got the first overall pick. So I, I think they're – they're probably not super upset with it being the way it was, but I don't think they expected it either. Yeah, I think if ever there was a lottery that was rigged, it was the Crosby sweepstakes. This one, yeah, eh, not so much. But um, what uh, what do you think about all the fan bases that are now rooting to lose their play in round just to get a shot at the lottery like did did they just not understand math i mean i i think there's some some teams like like the canucks maybe or or some of these like columbus even where they're like oh you know what we don't have a realistic shot at the cup this year so let's try to go for that first overall pick but i mean the play especially this year's playoffs it's going to be complete tire fire like no one's going to be fresh everyone's coming in not really knowing exactly what's going on. 
there's going to be weird stipulations around the games itself with no fans and and testing every day or every other day it's going to be a weird playoff so I think anyone really has a shot this year um as for draw like I don't know. I, I, I'm a Leafs fan. I've made a few jokes, and like I did earlier as well, about Lafreniere playing with Matthews. But I, I'd rather win the Cup. I'd rather go for the Cup. It's Especially in Toronto's situation or, or a situation like Edmonton, it just doesn't make sense to not go for it. I think both teams have a good enough team to go for it. Uh, Columbus fans, I think Columbus has a good shot. They're a decent team. Even, either, even like Montreal fans, like a lot of people have been saying, oh, like, now we can lose to Pittsburgh and everyone expects that and we can go for Lafreniere and it's like yeah but it's still only a 12.5 percent chance I think so your still your odds aren't great regardless but I'm not I don't think any players or coaches are going to be tanking management may hope that it happens but I don't think you're going to get a guy like uh Brennan Gallagher out on the ice and he's trying bare, he's barely trying out there so that he can get a chance to play with Lafreniere in a couple, next year so I don't think it's uh a great path to take just to lose on purpose. Yeah. I don't think any team's going to try to do that. I, my sentiment to the fans out there rooting for their team to lose, I I guess if you're in a situation where you're a Canadians fan, you kind of think we don't realistically have a shot at winning this whole thing. I can see the inclination to lean towards that. If every play in series or every playoff series is roughly a coin flip, then you've got, a 3% chance at winning the cup. So why lose that in order to have a 12 and a half chance at getting a first line winger who maybe cracks open your future odds to that same 3%. Like it just doesn't make sense to me. Go yeah, for exactly. it. Like, it's it's yeah. the Stanley cup playoffs. It's a war of attrition. Go for it. You make it in, you can win. Yeah. Especially on a team like, like you brought up Montreal, right? Like, if Carey Price gets hot, like he hasn't been the best goalie in the world in the last couple of years, but he's still Carey Price. And they've got guys like Brennan Gallagher and Max Domi that when they're hot, they're going. And Brennan Gallagher is one of the best even strength goal scorers in the NHL. I know people don't like to put him in that, but he, he is. Like you look at the numbers and he's right up there. So I, I think they're, Montreal is a team. Any, any of these teams that are in the play-in series, I think they have a shot. Like I said, there's so much weirdness going around, going on with these playoffs if they even happen. And I think any team has a real shot. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, Tony, do you think there's a chance that Seattle names their team the placeholders to try to make off with the number one pick? I mean, I would love that. Even if it was just a temporary like joke on Twitter where they changed it until after the draft, I think that would be the best thing ever. Yeah, they really, uh, they really missed out on an opportunity not uh, not jumping on that. A- another missed opportunity. I thought the NHL, I thought for their lottery reveal, Bill Daly, he totally spoiled it right off the hop. He just <laughs> just monotone. So you can see I have eight cards. So that means one of the placeholder teams has moved up into the top three. And it's like, man, where's where's your flair for the theatric where's the suspense and it like it ended up still being suspenseful I, the nhl logo came up after the number one card and i was screaming chaos chaos but <laughs> they could have had it been so much more painful for everyone if he would have just no numbers on the cards he's just flipping them and they're showing the order it's buffalo it's anaheim it's new jersey and then 
so the cards get flipped over and you've got what you think they flipped over seven cards and you think okay detroit's picking three ottawa's picking two la's picking one and then like a little smirk comes across bill daly's face and he starts lifting up another card and you're like wait what wait what and then it's boom nhl logo no, it's actually a placeholder team's picking number one. LA Kings down to number two. Senators down to number three. Red Wings down to number four. The the suspense and and the the roller coaster of emotions that would have taken place with that versus what actually happened would have been even more dramatic and epic. And uh, they really missed a window of opportunity there. Oh man! While you were describing that, all I picture was like Gary Bettman hiding behind the table, and right after he Bill Daly reveals the LA pick, Gary Bettman just slowly rises up with the card that has the NHL on it and puts it down for first overall with that goofy little smirk he has when he announces trades at the draft. Oh, that would have been so entertaining, and that, honestly, that would have gotten NHL fans like hyped up, ready for this draft, and and yeah. The monotone sense of Bill Daly announcing everything was a, a bit of a, a droll sense of tone. Yeah, and, and I mean, like it, it was good. I was still supremely entertained. It, it, it worked out for them, but it could have been just that extra higher level if they would have had that sense of the dramatic. So now that we know we're getting someone from the play-in series is going to win this number one overall pick what team needs deserves that number one pick who would you be happiest for i asked you beforehand to rank your top three so do you want to throw out your number three team and we'll kind of go back and forth yeah the team i put at three i considered a, a, quite a few here because after the first two i was like ah it's 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 a bit more wide open for me but at three i had arizona uh, they traded for Taylor Hall. They got Phil Kessel in the offseason. Neither were really all that great with Arizona. Uh, Hall looks set to leave in free agency, but getting Lafreniere might instill a bit of hope for him, and he might think there's a future in Arizona. Uh, it also allows them to keep their pick this year, because if it's not top three, then they have to send it to New Jersey. And this year's draft is automatically better than next year's draft, even if they get the first overall pick next year, because Lafreniere is – a step ahead of any prospect for next year's draft. You know, I, I would be with you on Arizona, if not for their tampering with prospects, ruining all the karma. Did you see Steve Eiserman's? He did uh, a presser yeah. after the fact, and they, they asked him what's going to happen with the, you're not, no one's getting the data from the combine. And he's like, well, actually any team but one. Uh, yeah doesn't have it throwing shade at the coyotes and we still don't know what's going to come of that but whatever horrible karma is coming their way for having done whatever they did we don't we don't know exactly what it is yet but i can't root for them sorry coyotes fans you know i know that you've never picked number one overall highest you picked was number three you got kyle turris you also had you took a great swing on Blake Wheeler at number five, but the guy didn't even end up signing with you. So they've had some tough luck in the lottery in the past. They ended up picking number three as well in the McDavid draft and missed out on Eichel and McDavid. So they've had some tough luck of it, but they ruined all of their karma. Whatever, whatever positive lottery mojo they got out of trading for Taylor Hall, they immediately lost it 
by tampering with prospects. Well, see that bad mojo plays right into my thought though. See, they get Lafreniere. Uh, they they get the they finally get their real true high end superstar. Like they've had Ekman Larson, they've had some guys that are, have been really really good players, but I don't think they've had a guy that Lafreniere can be if he reaches a ceiling. But with that, it's going to look great when he's all he's the French Canadian re- relocating to Quebec City in three years. So that's even better. <laughs> oh, so he's going to rip the Coyotes fans' hearts out by yeah, signing an get, offer sheet. He's going to no, he's going to get there. They're gonna. He's gonna bring Coyotes fans up. They're gonna start to play again, and then the entire team will relocate to Quebec City and they'll lose their team in general. <laughs> oh, I missed that. Oh my goodness. So they're not getting their new arena. This is all gonna fall apart on them. Yeah, it all falls apart on them. Oh my goodness. Well, the um, once again, I'm sorry, Coyotes fans. <laughs> and, and that was my only justification for putting Arizona at number three because I knew that was part of it. <laughs> Fair enough. My number three is the Nashville Predators. They, yeah, they were the other team I considered. Okay. So they, they're hitting the end of their window. I think without a Norris slash, like maybe even a Hart Trophy worthy performance out of Roman Yossi, they might have been in the lottery proper this year. Um, the, the, like the window's closed. They're old. They're getting bogged down with big contracts. Lafreniere, he's not a franchise centerman but he's a game breaker up front and they still don't have a franchise centerman, even after trading Seth Jones for Ryan Johansson, trading Sam Gerrard for Kyle Turris, giving Matt Duchesne 8 million a year. They still haven't solved that problem. They've got a solid foundation. They try to be competitive every year. It's wonderful when that team is competitive. The, the fans there put on a great show. They've never won the draft lottery. The highest they ever picked was number two in their inaugural draft class. Vincent Cavalier went number one. They got David Leguan, number two. That's, uh, I mean, Leguan was with them for a long time, but that's not a great consolation prize. So <laughs> I, think, I think they could use a little, a little lottery luck. Yeah, Nashville, is not, Nashville suffers from that. They don't have an elite uh, number one center. And that was part of the reason I, 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 cho- I was going to choose them as well at number three. But uh, I, I think Lafreniere is going to be good enough that he can kind of mitigate your number, not having a true number one center. And, and that kind of plays into the, the next two teams on my list. Okay, so who's number two on your list, Tony? So for number two, I have Columbus because they had just three picks last year, two fourths and a seventh. Uh, this year, they're also missing their second and their third round picks. So they're, they're going to be short on picks. But Lafreniere makes up for all of that. Yeah, he injects an Austin Matthews level superstar almost into their lineup. Uh, gives them some long-term legitimacy up front to go with some of their good but not great forward core. Uh, and I think Lafreniere is the kind of guy that can help elevate a guy like Pierre-Luc Dubois to, to the next level and, and make him a legitimate, scary number one center for teams to go up against. Yeah, so Columbus is my number one team. So I'm in full agreement with you here. Their best player ever is either Rick Nash, Artemi Panarin, or Sergei Brovovsky. And they lost the latter two of those in free agency last year, along with Matt Duchesne. They pushed all the chips into the middle and got an epic playoff series win, the, the only playoff series win in their franchise history. 
knocking off the record-breaking Tampa Bay Lightning. And then they lose all this talent and yet still remain competitive. I think they get huge karma points. They've never won the draft lottery before. They did pick number one in 02, picking Rick Nash, but they had to trade up for that pick. This team, they started, their franchise started losing a coin flip to the Minnesota Mm -hmm. Wild over the number three versus number four pick in the year 2000 draft. And number three was Marion Gabrick. Number four was Rusty Klesla. And then the theme of all my picks is we're looking at expansion teams from the the late 90s, early 2000s that came into the league during a, a talent drain on the league. And then right when the draft lottery started really producing awesome talents, they weren't quite at the bottom of the league. So they miss out on all these franchise changing options from 04 to 08. And instead they were picking in that six, seven range and just not, they're coming out with Derek Broussards in drafts where teams are getting Sidney Crosby. Like it just, it, it just, they could use a little bit of luck and they could use a franchise player. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I, I think Columbus has built up some good karma they, they, were, they were the entertaining team that did what we all wanted last, uh, last season when they went all in. They traded everything for, to go for a run. I, I don't think there's a fan inside or outside of Columbus that didn't love just seeing that for, uh, for the sense of fun. Uh, they built up the karma, like you said. Uh, I, I think Lafreniere landing in Columbus would be beautiful, especially because that means Toronto gets to go play Boston probably in the first round and probably lose again and I'll cry again. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, so who's your number one team? Columbus was my number one. Who's your number one? My number one, and this isn't something that I want to see, but I, I, I think it, it fits. It just fits too well is Montreal. I, I don't want to see it, but get them getting the French Canadian superstar. Uh, it, it's the team's dream. Uh, and if the fix is in for anyone, like I said earlier, it's Montreal. Uh, I, I've always said it would be Montreal if the fix was in, but I, I think it's legitimate regardless. Uh, they insert a legit superstar that can mitigate their lack of the number one center. And that was the big thing with them is I think Pierre-Luc Dubois is probably a, a, a bit underrated, but he, he's a legitimate low-end se- number one center right now, I think. Whereas Montreal, they have guys like Kotkaniemi and Suzuki in the pipeline. And I, and I think Lafreniere's presence there could help elevate those guys to at least being uh, a low-end number one center, despite the fact that both of them are probably more legitimate number two guys. Yeah, with Montreal, I'm hating all the Canadians fans rooting for their team to lose and thinking that the fix is in for them to get Lafreniere at number one. So for me, I think it would be supremely entertaining for the Habs to win the lottery, get everything that they think that they want in a homegrown French-speaking franchise player but then still be wishing that they had a number one centerman and still falling Hmm. short and falling flat. So there's a bit of schadenfreude that could take place here with the Montreal Canadiens. So I don't hate the suggestion, but they didn't, uh, they didn't ultimately make my list. Yeah. It struggled. It was a pain for me to put them at number one. I don't want to see Montreal do anything well. So them getting Lafreniere would hurt me personally. (laughs) Yeah. I, I do like the idea 
of adding a superstar to the Canadians and igniting the Canadians Leafs rivalry as well as Canadians Bruins rivalry. Like at end of the day, original six teams, it's it just it is exciting when they're relevant. There's nothing I, that's better than watching Montreal, Boston, Montreal, Toronto, a series or Toronto, Boston, a, a good long playoff series like that. And I think Lafreniere goes a long way into building some of those series up in, in the next few years. Absolutely. Um, we, we skipped over my number two team, the Minnesota Wild. I didn't have them quite as high as Columbus, maybe just because they ended up winning that coin flip that I referenced before and they got Marion Gabrick. And one of the things that, uh, that stood out for me is these guys, the highest they've ever picked is number three. They took Gabrick, probably the best player they've ever had. Again, another team that their windows closing, they're, they're aging out stall, Koivu, Parise, Suter. It's, it's, it's coming to a close. They're looking for a new star. Hopefully, Kirill Kaprizov can be that guy for them, but add another great talent to a team that has tried to win. And I, I was reading a, an article in The Athletic the other day uh, talking about that Marion Gabbert coin flip, and they mentioned the, the third year of the Wilds franchise history when they end up making the conference finals. When they were in the playoff hunt that year, they had a, an internal debate in the front office about whether to go for it or not because they thought that they were peaking too early they, they it wasn't part of the plan to to be relevant that fast and they end up making the conference finals but as it turns out that's the farthest they've ever made it in the playoffs they've only won a couple of rounds since and maybe they did peak too soon they didn't get any lottery luck from there on out and let's get them some yeah, I wouldn't be opposed to Minnesota winning it either. I think that's a team that could definitely use the the injection of, of youth and the injection of talent that Lafreniere would bring. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I noticed with the placeholder team winning this draft lottery, everyone knows Lafreniere is going number one. I don't think there's anyone who thinks that Byfield has is going to – get taken by a team at number one, unless something crazy happens where we've got junior leagues and stuff like that going before we have this draft lottery and we see something, something new, some new revelation. So placeholder gets Lafreniere and then we know the next seven picks. So you, you basically, it's a mock drafters dream. We know who's going number one, even though we don't know the team, but we know the next seven picks. So we, any mock drafter can do a top eight and it's going to be reasonable and relevant. You're going to be able to talk about team needs. So it actually, it works out really, really well for the mock drafters. So starting with the LA Kings, what direction do you think they're going in? Stutzla or Byfield? I think, I think it's, I think I'd go Byfield personally. I know there's some, I've seen some Kings fans suggest that going for Stutzel is the better pick because he's not a center and they have a lot of center depth. But the way I look at it is you bring Byfield and Turcotte in over the next couple of years, Turcotte next year, maybe Byfield the year after. And then you have Kopitar kind of mentoring them for a couple of years. And then he becomes your, thir- your de facto third line center in a couple of years as Turcotte and Byfield grow into their roles. And then you have a one, two, three punch of Byfield, Turcotte and, 
Kopitar and you you might have two of the best defensive centers in the league with Turcotte and Kopitar and then Byfield's the game-breaking talent on the first line uh, I don't think there's any reason to pass that up and honestly I think the LA Kings are the perfect situation to develop Quinton Byfield because they aren't in a rush with the rebuild and they have a guy like Kopitar to to teach Byfield exactly how to work and it's not like you're having a small center teach uh, the massive Byfield how to play in the NHL you have a guy that has the same size, that has the same frame, plays a bit of the same style of game, and he, he can kind of teach him where he, what he to do to get to the level that Kopitar was at and, and maybe even higher with Byfield's potential. And the, the thing that stands out for me is Team Canada theory. Just take all the centers and then yeah, figure exactly. it out from there. And you can do the San Jose Sharks thing where – they've got two centers on every line peak San Jose Sharks. You had Pavelski and Thornton, you had Couture and Hurdle. Like you have all these centers stacked up playing with each other. So you're, you're multiple, right? Anyone can play any role. You can move in and out. And the other thing is like, we don't know if these players are going to hit their potential. So if by he ends up not ironing out some of the kinks in his game, well, he's still going to be that huge, fast guy who can play a role as a power winger for you, even if he ultimately doesn't become that play-driving centerman. Yeah, exactly. Like, I've I seen some Kings fans go, well, what about Rasmus Kupari? And I'm like, you put him on the wing. If, if Byfield's good enough to play center, you move Kupari to the wing. That's not someone that you, you like, put, put in the way of Byfield's progression or even Turcotte's progression. Uh, like you said, the Team Canada theory, collect nine centers and fill your top nine with them. You're going to be able to a, – a lot better off in the long run for that because you're going to have a bit more of a free-flowing offense where if your center is deep in, deep in the offensive zone, you're, you're going to have a winger that has the experience at center that knows to get back and cover defensively a little bit. And, and I, I see no reason why you can't load up on centers and then work it out from there. Yeah, absolutely. So – the Senators are picking at number three and number five. Does this give them the kind of ammunition to do something crazy, like take a goalie in the top five for the first time since Carey Price? Well, I am totally on board with that because I'm, I don't have any faith in, in a lot of Ottawa's goaltending situation in the pipeline. Like I, I'm the Ottawa Senators writer for Dauber Prospects and like Sogard's big and Hogberg's okay, but they, they really don't have a guy. And I, I think this gives them the chance to. Um, I've been trying to pump that tire all year. I, I have Askarov fairly high up in my rankings, and I even debated on putting him at six myself. But he's a guy that if, if they want to get bold, do it. Um, if I'm Ottawa, I still look to trade back maybe. Maybe trade back to New Jersey's pick at eight and, or at seven. Uh, New Jersey can move up, take Sanderson if they want, and then uh, Ottawa can take Askarov a little later, and they get some extra draft capital as well. Yeah, what do you think the best case scenario for the Senators is at three and five? Uh, my best case scenario personally for the Senators at three and five, I'd probably do Stutzel Raymond. Stutzel Rossi wouldn't be bad or, or Rossi Raymond wouldn't be bad either. But I think Stutzel's going to go high. He's going to be probably the third guy because there's a lot of scouts, even from people I've talked to in the rinks before the season was shut down that, that loved Tim Stutzel. And, and, and I think – Despite the fact that I have my reservations on certain things, he is the dynamic talent that so many teams crave. And, 
And if if Stutzel's the guy at three for them, then they're going to get Rossi or Raymond at five. And and that's the case. That's what I'd go for personally. Interesting. So Detroit, they have needs everywhere. No one needed the number one pick more than they did. What, uh, what's the best case scenario for them? Uh, I, I think the best case scenario for them is they take whoever Ottawa doesn't take out of Stutzel and Raymond. Um, personally, I have Raymond a little bit of ahead, a little bit ahead of Stutzel. So if, if Ottawa does take Stutzel at three, like many expect Detroit taking Raymond would be a dream for them. He's a guy that I think outside of Quinton Byfield has the best chance of, of being the better player than, than Alexis Lafreniere. Um, I, I think it's a long shot. I, I don't think it's anything more than like three, five percent, maybe. But I think he does have a chance. Uh, he's just such a complete player. When you look at his his stats on a on a per rate basis rather than a per, like a, an actual game by game basis, you see that he's producing at a higher level than guys like Holtz and, and Gunler and other guys in the SHL. He produces at the same level as guys like Mika Zibanejad and William Nylander did. And he did it in anywhere between four and five less minutes of ice time per game. Uh, I think Raymond's a stud. He's been my number three guy all year long. So if I'm Detroit and I get Lucas Raymond, I'm, I'm laughing. Those are some really intriguing statistical comparables that, uh, that, that speak to maybe the talent that everyone was thinking about before people started having questions about Raymond throughout the season. Now, what, what do you think Iserman, he shocked the world with Maurice Sider at number six last year. So what would be the pick if he was to shock the world at number four? Uh, if, if he shocks the world at number four, I, I think he goes a defenseman. And I think, I, I don't think Jamie Drysdale would be a big shock because a lot of people have him high. Um, I think the shock would be if he were to go for Jake Sanderson. Uh, I, I'm a big Sanderson fan. I've been a guy that's been fairly high on him all year until he randomly got went from being in the 20s to top 10 like within a week. And and, I, and right now I have him just outside the top 10. He's my second best defenseman on the board. But taking him at number five would be uh, – or taking him at number four, sorry, would be a bit of a, a reach in my opinion with guys like Raymond Rossi, even Holtz and Gundler and, and Drysdale on the board. Yeah, ultimately the – the big forwards, they just have a, a way greater outsize impact than any defenseman does. So I, I think you kind of have to go forward at that spot in the draft. I've been I've been starting to tinker with the idea that you just you only draft forwards in the first round and then you only draft defensemen and goalies after the first round. Honestly, that's not the worst idea in the world, in my opinion. Like you you look at guys in the first round and, and you have a lot of guys like Aaron Eckblad's a really good player I think he's one of the best def- players at defending transitions in the in the NHL and in the modern day NHL that's a huge huge asset but is anyone really clamoring for Aaron Eckblad or like he, he's a really good player but there's there's players from his draft class alone that, that have had bigger impacts you look back at guys like Calvin DeHaan who was drafted fairly high and the forwards that were drafted around him and you're like Calvin DeHaan's a good player but there's other guys and there's the forwards, especially in the top 10 always ha- seem to have a bigger impact. Uh, I I've been on this kick lately where I'm like, there's two defensemen. Maybe I draft in the top 20 and that's Jamie Drysdale and Jake Sanderson. 
and on my la- on my last rankings at the start of June, Jamie Drysdale was number ten. Uh, I- I'm not a fan of this this defensive draft class as a whole. I, I just don't think there's that top end upside. Um, Jamie Drysdale is going to be a really good number two defenseman, and I think if you pair him with a guy like Jake Sanderson, a defensive guy that knows how to defend transitions, just like Aaron Ekblad, I, I think that's a, a good setup for him. But I think both those guys top out at number twos at best. And I, I don't think they're really going to be the driving force as the number one defenseman. Hmm. And so that brings up Anaheim at number six, where I think just about every mock draft says, well, they could use defensemen. Shrug, I guess we'll put the defenseman in at that spot. Is that uh, where you would lean or would you go forward? Uh, I, again, like I, I'd probably lean forward, but I think Anaheim probably goes with the defenseman here. If if Sanderson's not off the board, uh, they go with him. If, Jay, if Drysdale's not off the board, they probably go with him. Um, I think Anaheim's done a really good job historically of, of drafting and developing defensemen. So if, if they want to continue on with that path, I, I, I have more faith in them than – pretty much any other team in this top 10 for developing a defenseman. Yeah. And they traded 90% of them away. So suddenly they have a a hole and a need for another defenseman Uh, at number seven and, and potentially like number 11 or wherever Arizona's pick ends up. Do you think that the New Jersey devils just grab Rossi and Quinn and collect all of the 67s? Yeah, I've seen a lot. Like, you, you look at their prospect pool, and there's just tons of 67s guys on there. Um, I, I wouldn't be opposed to it. I think if they, if they can land Rossi at this stage in the draft, they're probably getting a top-five talent. Uh, the kid outproduced Lafreniere even this year in the OHL, which is, in my opinion, the harder league out of the two. Um, he, he's just a stud. I, I love Marco Rossi. He, he's small. He's 5'9", but he, he has uh, – I've said it all year. He has those Crosby thighs. He's just built like a truck on the bottom half, and he, he doesn't get pushed around really at all. I, I love Marco Rossi. Um, my gut feeling, though, is, is New Jersey is going to find a way to get Jake Sanderson. Uh, I know I've talked to a couple of their scouts at, at, at the NTDB games, and, and they just love the kid. They think this kid's a, a stud. So uh, if New Jersey doesn't drop Jake Sanderson, I'm going to be surprised. But if they go anywhere else, it's, it's probably going to be Marco Rossi. And if they don't? go either it's because they hired a new gm and he went wild card yeah exactly if they don't go either then they could go anywhere from holtz to perfetti or or anything like that because at this stage in the draft like in that in this six to ten twelve range is where things start to get a little bit more uh mixed up and wild yeah and that brings us up to the buffalo sabers who no longer have a front office no team maybe could have used the number one pick more than the Sabres just because you don't need a scouting staff to draft Lafreniere number one, but you probably do to figure out who you're going to draft at number eight. Yeah. Uh, Buffalo, they, they're a team. <laughs> <laughs> they are a they, team. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I seen yesterday they hired a, uh, a director of uh, scouting and a director, uh, assistant director of amateur scouting um the one guy comes from right from the ndt ntdp team with the u.s under 18s if i'm not mistaken and i I have i i hope that they do well i feel bad for buffalo at this point uh i i always hearken back to caller Dwayne from earlier in the season who yelled on the buffalo radio station how tired of it he was and 
I just I remember being the Leafs fan that was just constantly just sitting in the mud, not knowing what to do because every year at the start of the year, oh, this team has a real shot. They could be a five six seed in this in this conference, and then they're sitting on the playoff, sitting on the outside looking into the playoffs. And and Buffalo's been marring that forever, basically. And I feel bad for guys like Jack Eichel and Rasmus Dahlin, especially when Ryan O'Reilly's saying the same stuff that. Jack Eichel was saying this offseason, he was saying it last year and then, or a couple of years ago, and then he goes on and wins the cup right away. Uh, I just want Buffalo to draft someone well. I just want the pick to work out for them, really. <laughs> yeah, and the thing is, they've drafted in the top two three times in the past few years. They've got the foundational pieces. They have the number one centerman. That's impossible to get. They have the franchise defenseman. That's impossible to get. They did the stuff that you can't, that you can only luck into, right? And they didn't even get that lucky in getting there. They had to suck to get it. And they didn't hit on McDavid. They got Eichel. Well, excellent consolation prize, right? Not David Legwand, Jack Eichel, franchise yeah, exactly. center. They have the foundational pieces. They just have to build the rest of it around it. And it's not easy, but the hard work and the pain has been done. So now they just have to figure the rest of it out. It, it is the easier stuff than what they have to do. So as bad as things look, they aren't that far off. It just feels no. that way because they keep turning over GMs and plans and can never seem to get there. And I've been there as an Oilers fan. The decade of sadness was horrible. Okay. Like I feel it. We're, one year removed from feeling that way about the McDavid run in Edmonton. So it, it takes one good draft class to add guys like Ethan Bear and Caleb Jones to really round out the rest of the roster. They don't even have to be game-breaking players. They just have to be good enough so that the stars can do what they do and, and tilt games and then you can win. So the Sabres, they're not as far off as it feels right now. No, no I agree with you there. I, I don't think they're a terrible team. I think Jeff Skinner needs to start earning some of the money he did last year, or he got last year. Um, I think Sam Reinhardt's a good player. I think he's a good second-line center or even a, a winger on, on Jack Eichel's line. And g getting someone like Perfetti or Alexander Holtz here, I think that, that goes a long way for them at building that, like you said, the secondary scoring, the depth. Uh, I had someone ask me the other day, what, what's harder? Um, starting from scratch and trying to get that number one pick, or is it harder to get the Matthews, get the McDavid, or is it harder to build around the Matthews and McDavid? And originally, in my, going into the answer, I was arguing for getting McDavid and Matthews is the harder part. But then I, I look around the league, and like you said, the Oilers situation a, a year ago, and, and the Leafs situation at times this year, Buffalo's situation now with, with Eichel and Dallin, it, it, it's, it's really hard to build around those talents, and especially if you don't do what Chicago did early on and win because then th stuff starts costing you. Matthew signs his contract. McDavid signs his contract. Eichel just signed his. Now things are going to start adding up, and Dallin's going to be up for a contract in a year, if I'm not mistaken, and, and they're going to have to pay him as well. So now, like you, like you said, building up around them is going to be the thing, the, the thing they need to do. And, and doing it through the draft is going to be key because those guys are going to start costing money. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you you have to do it through the draft. It's going to be it's not just going to be this number eight pick. It's it's what they do with the rest of their picks. And the reality is these guys probably aren't going to bear fruit for another three to five years. So they really got to hope that their other draft classes get developed properly so that they can start bearing fruit in the next couple of years. Uh, Tony, exactly. I want to go rapid fire here on some what ifs. So let's do it. What if Jack Hughes was in this draft? Where's he going? Uh, third overall, probably. I put him behind Byfield because I think him and Byfield are probably the same level of prospect right now, but Byfield's ceiling is just astronomically higher. I think Byfield's ceiling is even higher than Lafreniere's, to be completely honest. Interesting. Yeah, it's uh, there's an argument there, for sure. You, we, We've been talking about it. You can't find those number one centermen um what if carter hart was in this draft class like a guy we know is a number one goalie we think askarov's a number one goalie but what if what if you knew you were getting a number one goalie where would you take him yeah w- with the hindsight i think he, you put him in that same range that askarov's kind of in now right at the end of the top 10 on like you might be able to justify moving him up even into the top into the six to ten range because of the the knowledge that he will be a number one goalie um i think askarov's as sure a thing as there is but like you said, there's there's a chance still that he's not a goal a, a starting goalie. So, I think Hart probably fits in right around the same slot Askarov does right now. Really, you wouldn't take him in the top five, knowing that he's going to be Carter Hart number one franchise goalie. Uh, I think Bobrovsky is the perfect example of that. A number one goalie isn't a number one goalie every year, but uh, a guy like Mitch Marner is Mitch Marner every year, and a guy like Austin Matthews, uh, he's Austin Matthews every year. So. I think you take the the forwards and stuff because I don't think you need the the superstar goalie to win the cup. You look at teams like Pittsburgh, Chicago, they've they've had dynasties on goalies that are good. They're not bad. Matt Murray is a really good young goaltender. Corey Crawford was a really good goaltender. Even you look at the Kings with Jonathan Quick, really good goaltender. But none of them were ever necessarily Vesna winners on a or Vesna caliber goalies on a consistent basis in the regular season. Uh Maybe that's just me personally downgrading goalies, but I, I think you take guys like uh, Lafreniere, Byfield, Raymond, Stutzel, even ahead of a guy like uh, Cor- Carter Hart, even even with the knowledge that he's going to be a number one goalie. Interesting. So the Flyers approach the Ottawa Senators, offer them Carter Hart for number three. They turn that down. I would if I was the Senators. If if I'm Ottawa and I do make that hypothetical trade back with New Jersey, like I, I alluded to earlier, where they get the end up getting the seventh pick, and then Philly comes up to you and they're like, "Hey, dude, how how do you feel about the seventh pick for Carter Hart?" I think that's where you start to consider it realistically, because that's where the draft starts to open up and get a little bit less. I don't want to say less guaranteed because no one's guaranteed, but a little bit more uh, risk becomes involved at that stage. Oh, that's a great answer. Thanks for exploring that thought experiment with me. What about Kirill Kaprizov? Where would you take him in this draft? Uh, is he going to be a, a, out of the league for five years still, or is he coming right away? <laughs> I, I'm saying 25-year-old Kirill Kaprizov, or I think he's 23. What, whatever his age is now, like he's he wants to come now. Okay, then uh, uh, i probably put him in the top five somewhere. Kirill Kraposov's really, really good. I, I think he's going to come to the NHL and make an immediate impact. Uh, he was third in the KHL in scoring last year, and he was easily one of the youngest guys in that top 10. Uh, 
the kid's a stud. You, you've seen him at the Olympic Games as a member of the Olympic athletes of Russia, not Team Russia. And he, he, he had nine points in the six games there. Last year, he had 62 points in 57 games. Uh, he's one of the top goal scorers in the league as well. I, I think he's going to be a game changer. And I'd put him with, I'd put him probably right behind Byfield because of Byfield's upside and my, my love for the kid. But uh, he'd be in that, that three to five range for sure. Interesting. I, I would think similar to Lafreniere's NHL readiness, uh, I would think that a team would jump on him at number two. But you would have to have him signed to that contract for a team to be willing to, to make that plunge. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what about I, – so I grabbed at a defenseman who's – we know he's pretty good. We know he's NHL caliber, but he's maybe – he's not a number one defenseman. Um, Philip Peronik, if he was in this draft class, we talked about defenseman value and how it, it pales in comparison to forward value. So if Heronic, knowing that he's a top four defenseman, but maybe not a number one defenseman, similar to how we kind of think about Sanderson and Drysdale. Um, knowing that if he was, if you knew you were getting that floor, where would you draft him in this class? Uh, I think he'd probably be behind Jamie Drysdale and Sanderson, but maybe ahead of any of the other defensemen. Top 20-ish, around 20, I'd, I'd start looking at him. Uh, I, I think Philip Veronic plays a really, really good game. Like he's, he plays well kind of in every area. He still has defensive tendencies that he has to work on specifically in front of his net. But I, I think he's a, a really good defenseman and he played on a really bad team last year. So I think there's only room for growth with him. Uh, I, I think with Sanderson and Drysdale, you, you take the, the upside and youth that they have. But I think uh, Hironic's right in behind those guys. Interesting. So now you're just you're you're solidifying more and more my idea of uh, it's not even my idea, but it's it's something I'm playing around with of drafting only forwards in the first round and only defensemen and goalies later. Yeah, especially in a draft class like this, like this isn't a strong draft class for defensemen at all. Like I I said it to someone the other day, if you want a defenseman, draft them next year because next year's there's a chance that there's seven in the top ten. This year. I've been arguing for a lot of the year that there should be one in the top 15, maybe two, but I, like, I, I can't justify taking a guy like even Jake Sanderson over a Marco Rossi or a Lucas Raymond. Like some people have tried to justify recently. It's just the impact of defenseman isn't the same as an impact of a, a high end forward, especially a Jake Sanderson. Who's, who's going to be a guy that you, when you watch, you just go, that's a good defenseman. And he's going to be a guy that plays a really good defensive game and he can contribute offensively. And I think there is some untapped offensive potential there, but I, I don't think he's going to be a uh, peak PK Subban guy or a, even like a, a guy like Roman Yossi by any means. And I don't think Drysdale has that in him either. But if last year is any indication, these guys are probably both going in the top five. Oh yeah. Like I, I've said it all year. Like I wouldn't draft them in the top, 15 probably like I, I like I said one or two in the top 20 but the, I think the last time a, top, a defenseman didn't go in the top five was 2003 so you're gonna get a defenseman in the top five like I, I almost guarantee that Ottawa is gonna end up taking Drysdale or LA is gonna be crazy and trade Drysdale it, it's gonna happen and so I, I'm ready for it but I'm gonna go ah, I wouldn't have done that <laughs> yeah no doubt that's uh that's the NHL in a nutshell. Uh, Tony, 
this was a hell of a lot of fun. I think we just about unpacked everything that one could after last night's lottery results. It sounds like you've got a whole bunch of things going on in your world as far as hockey goes. So why don't you plug some of the, uh, some of the news that you have? Yeah, we're uh, Dauber Prospects is doing a lot more scouting into, into next year. And uh, Yoki Nevalainen and I have both assembled a team, one in North America, one in Europe, to kind of take that task on. Uh, so we're going to have tons of scouting next year, tons of scouting reports on players and whatnot. Uh, that's going to be taken to the next level. And Yoki and I are starting a podcast ourselves, actually, in mid-July is hopefully when we're going to get the first episode out. Uh, tr- going to try to get a few episodes out kind of center- before the draft and whatnot. Uh, the podcast is going to be centered on the draft and scouting in general. Uh, we're going to bring on different people to talk to us about scouting. I'm going to hopefully try to get some actual NHL scouts on as well. So that'll be pretty fun. And uh, yeah, as for me, you can follow me at, on Twitter at the Tony Ferrari. Uh, most of my work's over at Dauber Prospects, so check them out. There's uh, tons of stuff going up all the time. Yeah, and the Dauber Prospects guide just got released, did it not? Yeah, the Dauber Prospects guide did just get released. Uh, there's tons of stuff going in, in it this year and there's going to be a few updates as we kind of work up to the draft and whatnot. So you'll be able to get all the updates for free as well. I think the guide, if I'm not mistaken, is $5.99 and there's info on every, almost every relevant prospect in, in all 31 systems, as well as over a hundred players from this year's draft. So you're getting a lot of bang for your buck with this one. Yeah, I, I can't uh, I can't vouch for that guide enough. I think the the favorite my favorite thing about when I worked for Dauber Hockey was getting the Dauber Prospects guide for free. So yeah, one 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 of the perks of the gig. Um, Tony, this was excellent. Thank you so much for coming on. No problem. Thanks for having me. I'm always available anytime, bud. Hey, pleased to be joined by Prashant Iyer of uh, Wings for Breakfast podcast. He started meta hockey with hockey graphs, swinging at Motown. You're everywhere, Prashant. <laughs> yeah, it's, it sure feels that way sometimes. No doubt getting pulled in, in many different directions. How are you doing? How's your hangover? Uh, you know, it's, uh, it was a rough night last night seeing um, the cards kind of flip the way that they did. I think a lot of people, you know, mathematically, that was the most likely outcome, you know, even with. Uh, Detroit having the worst record, they only had the third best chance at landing the first overall pick when you factor in the uh, the placeholders and Ottawa having two picks. So it was the most likely outcome from that standpoint, uh, but doesn't mean it hurt any less. Yeah, I often think about the, the famous Phil Jackson line that these things turn on a trifle. And is there any bigger trifle? than determining your draft order with bingo equipment yeah exactly I mean that was the that was the really frustrating part to all of this and I think a lot of people you know in Detroit Ottawa and and even other teams that got bounced down like Anaheim uh, were certainly upset with kind of how the whole process went but it is what it is and at this point you kind of got to make your your moves and finalize your draft board based on where you've landed now yeah, are you at all surprised that the 2019-20 Red Wings found a, a way to lose to something called Team E? Yeah, I mean, they lost to just about everybody else over the course of the season, setting aside Montreal. So I'm not, I'm not entirely surprised that they found a way to lose another thing. And, you know, if you look at the last 
uh, four draft lotteries. No team has dropped more in the lottery than Detroit. Uh, I think they've dropped eight spots in the last three lotteries when you factor in them dropping uh, from four to six a couple years in a row and uh, dropping all the way to to four this year from one. So it's, uh, it's certainly not surprising at this point that they found a way to lose another one. Yeah, I, I think I think I've run out of uh, of jokes to dig the knife in, so I'll I'll uh, I'll leave you alone on on that front. Um, with the with where the Red Wings are in their life cycle, I, I would assume that you're you've dived quite a bit into this draft class. Do you have a favorite for number four, or do you just realize that Steve Eiserman is going to stick to his guns and he's going to do whatever he wants, no matter what? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, I have personal favorites. I think the nice thing about this draft and, and even having a draft at the four spot is there's a plethora of really talented players where I personally believe you, you can't go wrong if you take them. Uh, to me, you know, it seems like the consensus top three right now is obviously Alexi Lafreniere, Quentin Byfield, and then Tim Stutzla. And so if I think that consensus top three kind of falls the way it falls. I mean, you, you're still sitting there at four with the opportunity to pick from Marco Rossi, who's got, you know, one of the highest scoring outputs from an OHL player in the last 20 years. Uh, you've obviously got Cole Perfetti, who also fits into that bucket. Uh, you know, one of the top 12 scoring seasons of the last 20 years for a draft eligible player. Uh, you know, you've obviously got the Swedish players and Lucas Raymond and Alexander Holtz. Holt arguably being the best goal scorer in this class, Raymond being kind of a really solid two-way winger. And then you've got the defenseman and Jamie Drysdale, uh, who's real smooth skating. I mean, I think he's a better defenseman than Bowen Byron was last year, and he's in that tier. And then obviously Jake Sanderson's made a big push of late. So, you know, there's a handful of players that uh, have the ability really to be, you know, franchise changing for the Red Wings, even at the four spot this year. I think me personally, I lean towards the trio of uh, Marco Rossi, uh, Lucas Raymond, and Cole Perfetti. I think any one of those three would probably be uh, ideal for Detroit. I, I kind of lean towards Rossi, but uh, by no means does that mean Raymond or Perfetti wouldn't be outstanding picks. That being said, you know, Steve Eiserman went off the board last year, surprised everybody with more insider at six. Uh, who knows if he's got another – uh, player that he's keyed in on um, that he's willing to take his eyes for. Yeah, and if he decides to do something crazy like draft the highest goalie since Carey Price, would you just like would you flip your coach? Yeah, I mean, me personally, I, I don't buy into drafting goalies high. I think their timeline for development is a lot longer than some of the skaters taken at a similar position. And I also think that their development is much more unpredictable. Uh, I think when you look at kind of the goalies taken in the first round from the last 20 years, you can count, you know, basically on two hands, the number that actually panned out. Uh, and you can count on one hand, the number that actually panned out for the team that drafted them. So uh, I think goalies are just, highly unpredictable. I don't know that there's really any team, maybe, you know, maybe Washington, maybe Anaheim to a certain degree that has uh, found a way to get multiple goaltenders in the draft. But that being said, I, I don't see the value in taking a goaltender as high as four, um, really even in the first round, in my opinion. But, you know, if, if that's who the Red Wings have keyed in on as their best player available, then 
uh, it would behoove them to take the guy that they have as their BPA. My personal philosophy, though, would be to steer you know clear of any goaltender that early. Yeah, I'm with you. My experiences with drafting goaltenders high, I've got a, a ton of bad ones from fantasy hockey failures and stuff like that. And it's like half of all goalies drafted in the first round, they end up flopping. But I had uh, I had Max from TBE Hockey on the podcast uh, about a month ago, and he did a study, and it was basically your first round goalie flops. They're either overhyped guys out of the CHL or guys who had ridiculous international performances. And at least with Askarov, he's going the other way on that front. He was ridiculous like everywhere, but in his uh, his world junior debut. So I don't know if it happens. I think that maybe maybe he's the one guy who bucks the trend. Yeah, I mean, and he's very clearly uh, an exceptionally talented goaltender. What he's accomplished thus far is unprecedented. I mean, you haven't really had goalies you know, get as far as he's gotten into the Russian leagues at his age. And, you know, so he's a very dynamic goaltender, very athletic. He's got the size you want at a goalie. You know, to me, though, just the, the draft history with goalies is quite terrifying. I mean, if you look at the goalies drafted, you know, between 2000 and 2010 in the first round, I mean, you're looking at what, Jack Campbell, Mark Vicentin, Chet Picard, Tom McCollum, Jonathan Bernier, Rico Hellenius. I mean, a lot of names of guys who people spent first-round picks on. And, and really, Bernier is a guy who's panned out, but it wasn't really for the Leafs. He's actually finally having the best season of his career, at, you know, uh, ironically, for Detroit. Uh, and you really got to go all the way back to Carey Price to find that goalie in 05 that was a first-round pick that panned out for their team because Varlamov was a first-round pick. But – Obviously, he didn't stick with his drafting team. Tuka Rask was a first-round pick. The Leafs dealt him to Boston for Andrew Raycroft. That didn't really work out. So it's, it's, it's kind of rough. Uh, it's a rough go to go after a goalie that high, and that's why I just think even if Askarov is, you know, the most talented goalie prospect we've seen since Carey Price, uh, I don't know that that's enough certainty for me to say, yeah, go ahead and take this guy at four, particularly for a team like Detroit that has – so many holes elsewhere on their roster. Yeah, goaltenders, it's a little bit like a hybrid between they're like quarterbacks in the NFL where they can have this outsized value, but they're also like running backs in the NFL where there's so much fungibility. But it, it seems like you also have to build that environment around those players and where the Red Wings are, they're not quite there in the life cycle. Um, last year's draft didn't look like a Steve Eiserman draft in terms of what the Red Wings did with all of their depth picks. With the Lightning, it seemed like they would go heavy CHL with some Russian juniors mixed in. And last year seemed a lot more like a Ken Holland draft with how many Swedes they picked. Is he going to have more influence over this process or am I just, you know, am I just misconstruing his influence in Tampa Bay? Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting kind of question because last year was a really weird transition um, because obviously Iserman comes on as general manager. Then initially you get reports that Holland is going to stay with Detroit and then just move up. But then Holland decides he's going to leave. He gets snapped up by Edmonton. Um, and at that point, you know, Tyler Wright, who had run the Red Wings amateur draft for the last few years, was still, you know, director of amateur scouting for Detroit. So he ultimately – was kind of like the point person. Iserman 
you know, from the, the reports we got, didn't necessarily exert undue influence over those guys and kind of let the department, you know, operate as they had been prepping really throughout the year. Uh, so I think what you got last year was kind of an amalgamation of Eisman plus Holland. Um, and really the, the cornerstone they were looking for last year was kind of this compete level aspect. So this year now, you know, you've had Eisman at the, at the helm for a year. You've had Chris Draper now as director of amateur scouting at the helm for a year. So I think it's possible you see this draft look very, very different from what last year's draft looked like. Um, at the same time, you know, if it is quite similar, then you're going to get a little bit more of an insight into how much influence they really exerted last year. But I suspect this draft will look a little bit different just because you've got a different director of amateur scouting. You've got some, you've had some turnover in the scouting department with the guys that departed to uh, Edmonton, some of the new guys that, that Draper brought in, like Jesse Walleen and uh, a couple other folks. So I do think there's going to be some differences this year uh, relative to what you saw last year. And I feel like it's those later picks that are really going to determine whether you can pull out of this rebuild or not. Like we've seen it in Edmonton. You can make all the number one picks you want. It's how you fill out the rest of the roster. Edmonton, they got freaking Connor McDavid and they were able to get almost nowhere with him until other guys from that 2015 draft like Ethan Bear and Caleb Jones and from some of their other drafts started filling out the rest of the roster. So while the Red Wings, you know, they don't get the big prize in this year's draft, they can set themselves up during this rebuild if they make a bunch of good later picks and they've got a ton of those mid-round picks to fill things out. So I would hope that they they make that transition over to more of the the lightning type model for picking because the lightning did crazy good. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I completely agree with that. I, my philosophy kind of with the way a rebuild works is obviously the best way to rebuild your team is through the draft. Um, and there's kind of a couple of important things you have to do in the draft. First, you can't miss on your high picks. So your first round pick, you've got to hit, you can't have any bus. Uh, that's not the time to, to swing for the fences and, and, and go for a boomer bus player. That's the time you have to hit on that player. So you want to take the guy, you have the highest certainty of reaching their potential. Uh, and, and so that's kind of the first piece, but the aspect you're bringing up is the way you get a rebuild moving faster or the way you kind of accelerate that timeline is when some of those mid to late round picks overachieve relative to where they are drafted. And that's, that's a lot of what happened in Tampa you know, a lot of what took Tampa to the next level was a guy like Andre Pilat, who's a seventh-round draft pick, becoming an exceptional player. A guy like Braden Point, who's a third-round pick, becoming an exceptional player. A guy like Nikita Kucherov, a third-round pick, becoming an exceptional player. That's, that's how you all of a sudden flip this switch, accelerate that timeline, and, and really take this to another level. Uh, and that's what Detroit's got to hope for here. So between their their mid-round picks last year, guys like Antti Tuomisto, Robert Mastrosimone, you know, Alvin Greva, Albert Johansson, they need those guys to really overachieve relative to where they were drafted. And then they need to accomplish the, sec the same thing this year. Whoever they're hitting in the second round and third round, that's th these guys have to overachieve relative to 
you know, where they were drafted. Otherwise, you end up stuck kind of in a purgatory standpoint, which is where Edmonton was for quite some time, even after drafting McDavid, until they started to get, you know, uh, contributions from the guys you named. And then until Leon Dreisaitl kind of took it to another level this year. Uh, you know, and so Detroit has plenty of opportunities to do that this year. They've got five picks between rounds two and three. So if they can just hit on a couple of those bingo balls, uh, you're talking about being able to speed this rebuild up a little bit faster. And is there anyone in the system among some of the later picks that they've taken in recent years who looks like they're headed towards that overachiever status? Yeah, I think the guy that you have to key in on right now is Albert Johansson, who's a you know, smooth skating defenseman out in, out in Sweden. He last year kind of flew under the radar, um, you know, was taken a little bit later than you would you know, would have expected being a, a later round pick. But over the course of this season, he slowly worked his way up in the SHL. And towards the end of the season, he was actually on quite a tear, um, you know, find, finally finding the back of the net, finding his game overall, you know, demonstrating that he had a real good command of the puck, awareness, kind of where the, thing, where the play was going to develop, you know, how things were moving. He grew a little bit up to six foot. Um, so I really thought, he was a guy that was showing signs of, hey, I might be able to transition to the NHL in, you know, two years or so, which is faster than I think a lot of the Red Wings fans thought would be the case, you know, given that he was taken, you know, six, 60th overall last year. So he's a guy already that, that jumps out to me as overachieving relative to being picked 60th. Um, outside of him, I'm not so sure that the Red Wings have – uh, any anybody else who seems to be overachieving uh, relative to where they were drafted, and that's why I think this year's uh, you know mid second, third, and fourth round picks are going to be incredibly important um, because some of the guys who the Wings thought were going to pan out, you know, a guy like Otto Kevin Mackey, who was a seventh round pick a couple years ago, looked really good the year after the draft in his D plus one year, didn't look so good last year, sustained a terrible concussion. So he, he's now kind of a big question mark for a guy that was going to overachieve. So that's why I think this year's draft is just so vitally important because there's not a lot of guys right now overachieving where they were picked. Yeah, that's a bit of an alarming state to be in as a franchise. And you mentioned all, all the picks that the Red Wings have in the mid-rounds. You can thank the Oilers for a couple of those the Red Wings traded in Andreas Athanasiu for a couple of seconds. Would they consider doing something similar with Anthony Mantha, just knowing that the life cycle for power forwards is so thin that he may not still be in his prime by the time the life cycle of the Red Wings comes back around to contention? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And, you know, quite honestly, it's something that came up a lot this year, particularly the angle of connecting him to Montreal, uh, given that, you know, he's a French-Canadian kid. But uh, I think it's something you have to entertain. You have to be open, if you're Steve Eisenman, to really any idea. Uh, there's You can't really be married to any player at this point, save for maybe Dylan Larkin, who you've got on a pretty outstanding contract. Uh, but I think it's something you have to explore. Mantha's had some injury issues the last couple of years. He still hasn't really put together a full season, even though this year he really kind of stepped out of the shell and showed that he can be a dominant power forward. 
he is, you know, 24 at this point. So you have to say, am I going to be competitive in the next six to seven years? And if you think the answer is yes, then maybe you hang on to him. If you think the answer is no, uh, then potentially that's where you look on and seeing if you can get something more for him. I think with Mantha, he's certainly more valuable than Athanasiu. Uh, I think he tends to be much more impactful on the defensive end than Athens was. Uh, I think he's got the same kind of goal scoring touch and potentially even a bit better offensive awareness. So to me, he would be a guy, if you're moving him, you're looking for at least a first round pick, if not more. So I think it's something Eisman entertains. I don't think it's a move he makes though, because I do believe that between this year's draft, even at fourth overall, and potentially hitting on some of these guys in the second round, that Detroit could be competitive as soon as three to four years from now. And you don't want to necessarily move a guy like Mantha, who you might get on a pretty solid contract this offseason. You don't want to move him if you've got a good value, uh, kind of a cost-effectiveness ratio out of him. So knowing that life cycle of the power forwards and his RFA status, would you be pro or con making a long-term bet on Mantha to try to keep that uh, cap hit down? Yeah, to me, I would absolutely hand him a seven-year deal. I think he's a rare type of uh, power forward player that has all of that capacity. You know, a seven-year deal takes him until he's 31, 32. I don't think you're going to ever run into a scenario in that contract where he's egregiously underperforming that deal. Uh, I don't think this is a Nathan Horton type situation. I don't think it's, you know, anything along those lines. I think he's certainly more skilled than that. And I think, honestly, if Detroit can get him to stop fighting, all of the injury issues may go away as well because almost all of his injuries in the last couple of years have been related to broken hands uh, due to fights. So if they can get him to stop doing that, get him to focus on the offensive end of the game, I think it's, he's a pretty good bet to outperform whatever contract he gets, even if it's over seven years. Wow. Um, and you mentioned the broken hands. So don't trade him to the Montreal Canadiens, because as we've seen with Brendan Gallagher, uh, Shea Weber's slap shots will find you. Yeah. I mean, he's broken his hand, I think, twice uh, in the last two years in fights. And then this year, you know, he gets into a scuffle with Jake Muzzin and ends up puncturing a lung as a result of that. So he just needs to stop fighting and, and, and protect those hands. No question. I'll put you on the spot a little bit here. Give give a range for me. Where does Mantha rank among the, the best power forwards in the league today? I mean, I'll, I'll take it a step further. And if we're talking about just the best wingers in the league, I think he's one of the top 15 wingers in the league. Um, I think he is that good. When you start to dig into a little bit of his uh, overall impact on the ice when you look at him from a kind of goals above replacement standpoint, which is, you know, a statistic that was created by uh, the Sundgren twins uh, who run Evolving Hockey. Mantha consistently in the first part of the year was uh, among the top five wingers in the NHL. He was right there with Leon Dreisaitl and Brad Marchand. Like, that's how good of a start he had to the season. So I don't think he's quite in that territory having only demonstrated that for a half season, but I don't think it's egregious to say that he's one of the 15 best wingers when you evaluate his overall impact on the ice um, and kind of marry that with his ability to score goals. If he can stay healthy for a full season, I mean, this is the kind of guy that uh, I think can do big things for a team. 
yeah, okay, I, I retract my uh, my trade offer. Don't don't get rid of Mantha. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, he's a guy. I think you can make a, a solid argument that he's more valuable to Detroit than Dylan Larkin is. Uh, that's how good of a season he had. Wow, that uh, monster Mantha. He he earns the nickname. He certainly um, does. So. Maurice Sider is kind of the next big thing coming up for the Red Wings. Is he more Bogosian, Pareko, or Petrangelo? It's a great question. I think you're hoping he's Petrangelo. Uh, I think you're also hoping he's Pareko to a certain extent. But, you know, the, the safe answer is you still don't really know at this point. Um, you know, obviously, you didn't get a long look at him in the DEL in his draft year because – when he was over there, he was playing maybe four or five minutes a night. Uh, Adler-Mannheim was a really good team. He just didn't see a lot of ice time, but you could see enough of him to know that he had some skills. Then this year, you kind of take him over to the AHL and drop him in there as an 18-year-old where not a lot of 18-year-olds come and play in the AHL, and he had a really solid season. I think by the end of the AHL season, he was arguably Detroit's best defenseman playing in – or I should say Grand Rapids – best defenseman playing in all situations and, and playing big minutes a night, probably over 20, 22 minutes a night uh, based on kind of what we can estimate. So to me, he's showing all the signs of being able to put that full game together. The issue with kind of lumping him into that Pareko Petrangelo bucket is I don't know that his offense is necessarily in that tier. Um, he's a guy who, doesn't necessarily take available ice when given to him, is a little bit more comfortable hugging that blue line, is a little bit more comfortable kind of playing a defense-first mentality. But that being said, he has all of the tools to kind of open up the offense a little bit more, and he's such a good skater that uh, if he wanted to, he would likely not give up anything extra defensively. So I think he has the potential to be more. Uh, the question is whether or not he really takes it to that level. Yeah, and you, you can never really know whether a player is going to have that drive or not. Um, another lottery pick for the Red Wings, Zadina looked like an absolute monster in his draft season. What is he? Where does he fit? Yeah, I mean, as a, in his draft season, he looked like a dynamic forward, a guy you could take. Then his you know, first year afterwards, he struggled a lot in Grand Rapids. Um, couldn't really find his game, Was had the worst plus-minus of anyone on the team. This year, though, when he was up with Detroit, he was very encouraging watching him. He was uh, all over the ice. He seemed to be controlling play when he was on the ice. He was doing it with teammates that weren't all that talented. He didn't get a lot of run time with, uh, with Larkin or with Mantha or even with Athanasiu. He saw a lot of time with guys like Franz Nielsen, Valtteri Fopola, Darren Helm, you know, players like that, and was still able to score at a decent clip. And I think more importantly, he really offered the Detroit power play something more. He was such a good passer. He knew where to look for uh, people on the ice, and he actually helped their power play a lot uh, when he was up. Ultimately, he did get hurt towards, uh, you know, a little bit before the, the stoppage happened, and so we didn't get to see his kind of full season go out from there but I think all the signs were there that this is a guy who could be a solid you know top six scoring forward that gives you a little bit uh, of offense and defense so I think all the pieces are there um, I'm really excited to see how he looks uh, 
when this when the season kind of picks back up in 2020 2021 interesting that you say that he was able to drive play and offense with some uh, less than talented players that's a very good sign for him going forward because I was worried maybe he was falling into that bucket where he's more of a complimentary super talented guy but he needs other guys to really force multiply him to get the most out of him yeah that was I think that was the concern for a lot of people just given that you know his first year went so poorly but I mean he did not play a lot of minutes with with good players and Detroit only had a couple of them so you know, he, he did a really good job with less than talented or less than ideal teammates, I should say. Uh, the Red Wings have a ton of money coming off the books this summer in a league where the cap is expected to be flat. Are you expecting them to flex some financial muscle this summer or do they just have too many landmines still on the books? Yeah, they certainly could. They have plenty of money available to them. Um, you know, they're likely, even if the cap stays, you know, flat at $81.5 million, they're likely to have, uh, you know, about $35 million in cap space. Now, they do have a ton of free agents in-house that they need to deal with. Uh, some of those guys are going to be back. You know, Anthony Mantha's one who will probably get somewhere between seven, $7.5 Tyler Bertuzzi's there. They'll probably get close to five, five and a half million. So already you've kind of chipped away about 13 million of that there. You know, Robbie Fabry is likely to be back. Dimitro Timoshov is likely to be back. So you're probably looking at about maybe 20 million in usable cap space. Uh, and that's without filling out any of the extra, you know, holes in the roster that are, that are going to be there. I personally don't see Detroit using that in free agency whatsoever. Where that might come into play is if there are teams that are tight to the cap that we're expecting maybe to have, uh, you know, a few extra million in the offseason uh, to work with. Those are the teams that Detroit might go up to and say, hey, you know, I'll take one of your bad contracts off the books so you can be a little bit more flexible with your free agents, but you got to give me something in return. And so, you know, maybe that's a team like Tampa who needs to resign. Uh, Anthony Sorelli, they need to re-sign uh, Mikhail Sergachev, they need to re-sign uh, Eric Chernak. So, you know, if you have to go give money to those guys and you're already, you know, Tampa's already sitting at uh, $76 million in, in cap hits committed for next year, uh, leaving them about $5 million to make those deals, you know that Tampa may want to say, all right, if you're willing to take, you know, Tyler Johnson and his $5 million or Alex Kalorn and his $4.5 million, I'll throw in a first round pick for you, then yeah, I think that's the move Detroit makes. You want to basically make a move similar to what Carolina did last year when they, you know, offered to take Patrick Marlowe with their extra cap space and Toronto threw them that first round pick. And ultimately Carolina was then able to take that. And that's what allowed them to make the Brady Shea deal uh, right at the trade deadline because they knew they still had another first round pick uh, that they could work with. So that's kind of the move that I see Detroit making if they use that cap space. Otherwise, they may just let it sit as dead cap space, which is no problem, and they can punt that flexibility closer to the next trade deadline. Mm, and, and Iserman would have the inside track on all of those Lightning guys as well. I wonder if it doesn't end up being more 
along the lines of what happened with Vancouver grabbing JT Miller, where it's a player they want and are willing to give up maybe a little bit of their draft capital in order to go out and get. Yeah, I mean, they, they certainly could do that. Um, you know, we'll see what, what Tampa does and kind of how Eiserman negotiates with them. I mean, for example, from Detroit's perspective, if you drop Tyler Johnson on Detroit, he's instantly their second best center. So it would be a valuable player added for Detroit uh, in that re regard. And so we'll kind of see what, um, you know, how Tampa negotiates with Eiserman, how Eiserman negotiates with Tampa whether, you know, how Tampa wants to make their moves. But it'll be really, really interesting um, to watch because that's kind of the move, really, that Detroit's set up to make right now as opposed to splashes in free agency. Mm. And so if they aren't going to spend money in free agency, how are they going to insulate their young defense core? Yeah, the, the challenges are probably not going to. It's probably going to be very similar to what you saw this year where Philip Ronick was in over his head. Um, and struggled a lot towards the end of the year. Dennis Chalowski couldn't stick because uh, he was just having to deal with too much. Uh, you know, I suspect it's going to be more the same. And, and I think the Red Wings know that. Eiserman has said that this is a five-year build. Uh, this isn't anything that's going to go away fast. So, you know, knowing all of that, I, I think the Red Wings are fully committed to recognizing that their young players are going to take a beating again next year. They're their decor is likely going to play in above their head, but adding more insider to the NHL roster next year will kind of help push some people down into the right position. And, and I think it'll, you know, give the wings some clue as to what they have insider and, and potentially allow them to, to make more moves based on that. Oh, they, uh, they better take out an extra insurance policy on uh, on Jonathan Bernier then because that guy is going to face a lot of rubber. Yeah, I mean, Bernier faced a lot of rubber this year and was an outstanding goaltender. Uh, you know, I, honestly, I, I kind of joke, but sort of don't joke that he should receive Vezina votes for what he did in Detroit this year. And I think it'll be the same thing again next year. And and I think he knows that. I think everyone in Detroit's comfortable with that and, and recognizes that it's going to be bad before it gets better. And, and next year might be just as bad, um, you know, as this year was. Well, Prashanth, this was a hell of a lot of fun. You, uh, you filled me in on uh, a lot of my questions, uh, a lot of great information. Thank you so much for being generous with your time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And, and I would just mention, as someone who was three years old, the last time that uh, the Oilers won the Cup, that was the end of their dynasty, um, it gets better. Oh, uh, yeah, I know. I mean, uh, honestly, who am I to complain having, you know, lived through four Stanley Cups already as a, as a Wings fan? So, you know, it's, it's I get it. It's going to be bad for a while. I already have four Cups in my lifetime, um, and I'm hopeful that it turns around in the next five to seven years here. Right on. That's, that's all you can really hope for, right? Um, so, like I said, thanks so much for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Next guest on today's podcast from Dauber Prospects, Lucas Main. Lucas, how are you doing this morning? Doing well, doing well. Got uh, got my coffee and Bailey's, so I'm uh, 
I'm ready to go. <laughs> right on. You're uh, you're getting the the uppers and the downers this morning, apparently. Yeah, you know, a little little bit both ways. So. Right on. So I know you aren't totally used to this lottery thing, but how did you enjoy Friday evening's uh, fireworks? Yeah, I mean, definitely they were fireworks, right? I mean, I know uh, in in your blog you wrote about how, um, you know, they could have done a much better job at uh, the suspense aspect of it. And uh, I mean... I think if they actually showed the lottery, you know, the balls moving around and everything, um, that would have, that could have drawn a lot more suspense too, but going into it, we knew there were eight cards. So we knew there was going to be a, you know, one of those play in teams. So it was kind of, where were they going to land? But I think uh, if we didn't know that at the start, it would have, it would have caught everyone off guard, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think they they spoiled the suspense, but it, it still ended up being pretty darn exciting. Um, when he announced that uh, a play-in team had moved up, did you immediately sink knowing kind of it was likely that the Ducks had moved down? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, I... I immediately thought, uh, I was like, oh, well, you know, I'm sure um, it's probably kind of everyone's just falling down a couple of, you know, a spot, a spot or two. um, And there weren't going to be any huge risers except for this one mystery team. And um, how do you feel about your in-state rival, the Kings, moving up to number two and adding to their war chest? Yeah, um, that was that was a bummer. But I, uh, I have a buddy; uh, he's a big Kings fan, so uh, we were texting throughout, and we were kept going back and forth. And I was like, "Not this one, not this one," and they kept moving up and up. And I mean, I, I guess you know, in the end, I, I was happy it wasn't number one for them. But uh, I mean, it'll be good for for the rival rivalry and hockey down here in Orange County. So, uh, you know, it, it is what it is. I, I think the Ducks will still grab a good player at six. Uh, you know, as we all know, this draft is uh, pretty, pretty deep. So, um, I mean, I'm, I'm still excited. They, they'll get a good player. Yeah. Who do you have your eye on at number six? I think that just about every mock drafter seems to just kind of be shrugging their shoulders and saying, well, they, they don't really have much on defense. So I guess this is the spot to put Drysdale or Sanderson. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Drysdale would be, uh, you know, a, a, I think uh, ideal here. Um, they don't have much in the pipeline coming up uh, on defense. Um in terms of big names like that. Uh, so I think he, he, he could be a great fit there. Or um, I, I really like Alexander Holtz. Um, the Ducks do a great job of developing Swedish players and uh, they just don't have a pure sniper like him uh, in the lineup or, you know, coming up. So 
Um, I think he he could be a great addition to the team. You know, they already have Raquel, Silverberg, Lindholm. So um, he'll he'll have, uh, you know, Swedish teammates and uh, guys to make him feel comfortable in the locker room. So I think Holtz and Zegers for the next, you know, 10 years would be a lethal duo. Yeah, and you mentioned that the Ducks don't have much coming up defensively uh, in their pipeline. What the hell happened to a, a once, like, one of the best defensive pipelines in the league? I know, right? Uh, I mean, with the expansion draft, they lost Shea Theodore. Um, and, you know, they, they dealt Sammy Vatten in for uh, Henrik when, uh, you know, Getzloff. Ryan Kessler, uh, you know, they just had a ton of injuries down the middle. And um, so Vontanen was let go. Uh, I I was pretty bummed about that, about Marcus Patterson when they dealt him to Pittsburgh. Uh, You know, he, he's, I think he's only 22, 23. So he's still developing. And um, I know when they drafted him in the second round, he, he was a, a bit of a project, but uh, he developed and grew into his body. Um, so I feel like they kind of let go of him a little too early. Um, so, you know, they, they, they do a good job of the, the scouting staff does a good job of uh, finding guys in later rounds. Uh, Josh Manson was a, a late round pick. Uh, Sammy Votnin was a late round pick. Uh, you know, last year they drafted Henry Thrun. Um, he looks to be a pretty solid player already. Um, so they, they're able to grab guys late. Um, and I think they'll be able to restock that. They still have Fowler and Lindholm, um, you know, guys to kind of build around. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's a shame. They, all that depth went away. Brandon Montour, you know, they traded him too. Um, so, yeah, they had a surplus and, you know, they just lost track and got rid of everyone almost, it seems like, huh? Yeah, and you mentioned that Pedersen, they dealt him for uh, Daniel Sprong and Sprong has since been traded away. It, it seems like they've had all these exciting forwards coming up through the pipeline in recent years but once they actually have to make that leap to the NHL they've kind of fizzled so is, is there something happening there like guys like Troy Terry, Sam Steele, Max Comtois, Sprong, uh, Isaac Lundestrom, Max Jones they haven't really made that mark yet at the NHL level is it they're just not far enough long on the developmental curve or is something going awry there? Yeah you know I think they just um kind of need need some extra time uh you know you look at max jones this last season he uh, he came up and uh he, he he wasn't bearing all of his chances but he was getting those those chances um sam Steele, you know he's uh i think he's going to be a really good two-way center um definitely his offense hasn't transitioned uh, back when he was with Regina, but, um, you know, he's, he's going to be a solid player, a nice 
two, three center. Um, Isaac Lundenstrom, you know, he, uh, he definitely needs some more time to develop. Uh, Troy Terry, he, um, he seemed to have some confidence issues when he came up at the start of uh, this past the 2019 season. Um, you know, he went back down to the minors, regained some of that, helped San Diego climb back up at the standings, and then came back up. Um, and you could see he was a, a different player, shooting the puck a little more, um, you know, holding onto the puck that extra split second. Um, so I think, you know, just some, some confidence issues in some of these guys. And, uh, you know, once they kind of get their full legs under them, it'll be a, a real solid group. And I guess it probably isn't helping matters that Ryan Getzloff is no longer kind of that rising tide that, floats all boats so it's not the most ideal situation do you think that Trevor Zegris could step in right away and become that rising tide for them yeah I mean I definitely think uh you know with how quickly the NHL is transitioning into this more speed and skill game he has a a really good shot at making the team you know next season especially if you know, it doesn't start till January or, you know, whenever. Um, but I think he he could definitely step into, you know, um, a sheltered role in uh, the NHL and uh, learn learn from Getzloff. He's he's 35. So um, on, on the last year of his contract. So I think, you know, he management wants to get as much influence kind of out of him onto some of these younger guys. Um, and I think Getzloff kind of transitions more into like a Joe Thornton type of role, you know, coming back to Anaheim each, each summer on kind of a one-way deal. Um, I mean, he already has a Stanley cup, so he doesn't need to go chase one of those. He's got tons of money in the bank. Um, he has a, a big family out here who, uh, they, they built that chicken coop. So I don't think he wants to leave that. Um, so I, I think he can, um, you know, take on that full captaincy role and help uh, mentor some of these young guys coming up. And you mentioned Getzlaff is in the last year of his deal. Next year is kind of the year of pain for the Ducks with Bacchus and Goodbranson still on the books. And then Corey Perry, his buyout spikes from 2 million to six and a half million for one season. Uh, is it safe to say the Ducks aren't going to be getting involved in free agency this fall or whenever that happens? Yeah, I mean, definitely, you know, they're um, taking more of this development route. Um, you know, they want to grow from within and um, they they still have some of those high, heavy contracts. So um, I I think you see them kind of, yeah, w- waited out a couple of couple of seasons and uh, before they start signing any big name free agents again. Um, and unfortunately, you know, when when those guys are gone, uh, I believe Lindholm and Raquel have, I think, two, three years left, maybe. Um, 
So yeah, I mean, they both have three. Yeah, so so those guys will need new contracts as well. Then and then some of these entry level contracts will start to expire. So, um, you know, with with all the uh, escrow and cap talks going on, who who knows what uh, the actual cap number will be like? But yeah, I I don't see them spending any any big money in. Uh, well, not July 1st, but whenever free agency opens up. And you mentioned Lindholm needs a new deal. Do you figure the best strategy is to toss him a Roman Yossi type contract in a couple of years and hold on to him uh, into his mid thirties? Or would you consider training a guy like that at the peak of his value, similar to how they've traded guys like Nick Ritchie and Andre Kasha, because it's just not, they're not in that window to win right now. No, I mean, I, he's, um, every, every season I've seen, I've seen a little improvement in him. Uh, you know, I, I don't think he gets the recognition he deserves playing on the West coast, you know? Um, I, I think he still has tons of room for improvement too, uh, to step up into, you know, kind of a number one role, like, uh, kind of like Yossi has developed into, you know, um, he's, uh, you know, uh, he'll, he'll definitely, I think, stay in Anaheim for, um, for, for a good number of years. I think the, they'll get a deal done. Not, uh, you know, not, not 9 million, like, like Roman Yossi, but, uh, I, I could see them definitely, you know, extending a, a fat contract his way to keep him here. He doesn't really have the offense that Yossi has. So would he warrant giving that number one type money if he's, if he only maxes out as a number two type guy? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, he, he's so good defensively that, uh, you know, the, the last few years he's, he's not getting that power play time. So he's not producing, um, you know, those, those high end Roman Yossi numbers. Um, but I'm, I'm pulling up his stats right now. I know he's, he's had a, a few seasons where he's scored 10, you know, plus goals. Um, just, you know, he, he doesn't get any power play time. Um, so I, I feel like if he got up to those, you know, 26, 27 minutes with, power play time he uh he could turn into uh you know a solid 55 60 point defenseman um you know he he has a career high of 13 goals in 69 games um he he's got it he always tends to get his shot through from the point when he does shoot it so um you know i think there's plenty of room for um improvement in you know the statistical aspect of his game and speaking of needing an improvement in the statistical aspect what the hell happened to john gibson last year yeah this uh this past season exactly yeah uh, i mean we we all saw he carried the ducks uh you know two two years ago um when you know they were getting outshot monstrous numbers you know i think they were giving up 
30, what was it? 36, 37 shots a game, you know, and he was keeping the ducks in every game. And then, um, I mean, obviously over a full season, he kind of fizzled out uh, with that type of workload. And th- this season, um, you know, he, he kind of had a couple of nagging injuries and uh, whatnot. And I think he, you know, he he knew that this was sort of a kind of a rebuild season. So, um, you know, unfortunately, his his game went down a little bit. But um, I think if there's, you know, if you want to transition this to a fantasy talk, uh, if you can buy him low in some of your leagues, I would definitely go for it. Because that uh, that that won't repeat. Oh, that's good to hear. I, for my money, I think I've been floating around this goalie championship belt idea. And for my money, Gibson probably has it right now. But it's tough to have him continue on with it if he has another season like he had this past one. When I had uh, Paul Campbell from In Goal Mag on the podcast he floated the theory that randy carlisle's system does something to help pad goalie stats do you think there's any truth to that uh i mean yeah you know you you look at carlisle's um you know his his old ways and systems and he um being a defenseman himself uh you know i'm sure he knew uh you know kind of he he threw in schemes and stuff to have have his defensemen block shots and you know help out um the goalies um but you know towards the end just the that cuz that's when uh and you know his final season before he got fired was when Gibson was facing you know 36 37 shots a game um it kind of just didn't float with any of the guys anymore so um you know i i i would say when when carlisle was you know when they won the cup and uh kind of in his later years he uh he played more of a system to help the goalies out for sure um but but you look at this past season with the ducks under dallas eakins um you know there were stretches of you know, eight, 10 games where their top four was hurt, you know, Cam Fowler, Hampus Lindholm, Eric Goodbranson, Josh Manson were all out at the same time. So, you know, he, Gibson wasn't getting much help down low either. Um, So there's another reason why his numbers kind of suffered, but um, you know, they, once everyone's healthy, he's definitely back into um, kind of a top, top 10, top five goalie in my books. Okay. So we'll, we'll write off the poor performance from last season. When do the ducks get competitive again? Is it going to happen during John Gibson's prime or is he going to be fading by the time they're ready to win? Yeah. uh, You know, I think, I think it's, you know, the way the NHL is now, there's so many um, kind of surprise teams that come out each season, right? Um, 
So I think as soon as next season, they could be back into that playoff contention form, you know. Um, you look at the Pacific and there's, I mean, not a, you know, the all the teams in that division are kind of just muddling around, um, you know, average at least at least for this season you know and uh with some of the young guys getting more experience and uh if they're able to all stay healthy i i think they're back in a playoff spot next season excuse me um you know especially with you know they have a the sixth pick this summer um and and another first rounder depending on where boston you know ends up um, so they they have lots of uh, young talent coming up, and in today's today's game, it's it's a young man's game. So I think we you can uh, may, maybe it's just watching them a lot and you know living down here. But I I would pencil them in as a contender for a playoff spot next season. And Lucas, don't downplay your hot take. You're calling for the Ducks <laughs> to come back in to the playoffs. Do you think they're going to oust someone like Calgary? Do they still own Calgary? Yeah, you know, I I, I tried to subtly throw that in there, but if you, you know, you, we're we're going to call me out on it. I'll I'll take that hot take. Yeah, um, the you know. Yeah, teams like Calgary and Vancouver, um, you know, they always play play up to um, those rivalry games. And uh, if, you know, you, you do well within your division, um, I, you know, I think the, the sky is the limit and uh, you, you can see them back in the playoffs as soon as next season. Oh, that would be exciting. Um, you mentioned that the number six pick could help out the Ducks next season. Are you expecting to see the number six pick make the leap to the NHL next year? I mean, you know, it it depends on who who drops there, but um, I I think you could see him up for a couple of games, but um, I wouldn't expect a full season out of him. Uh, I'm sure it would be nice to see, you know, if, if they do pick a guy like Holtz, uh, you know, come, come to Anaheim. And, uh, you know, like I said, there's a lot of Swedes on the Ducks roster. So, you know, just kind of get them acclimated to, uh, you know, a North American pro style type of game. Uh, give them a few games, a, a little look. Um, but, no, I, I don't think – we see a full-time spot from uh, the number six pick this coming season. Okay, fair enough. Um, you mentioned that the Ducks, they picked up a an additional first rounder out of the Andre Kasha deal, as well as they have the, I think it's the number 36 pick in uh, the second round. So a couple of picks in, in the top 40 on top of the number six pick. Who are you most interested in out of this draft class in and around that range? Who would you love uh, for the Ducks to sink their teeth into? Um, you know, I, I mean, I, it, it goes back to, you know, if, if they go D or forward with that first pick, obviously it's most likely going to be a forward because um, you 
you know, we see defensemen going, uh, kind of getting reached for early. Um, but, you know, uh, I think back in that, uh, that, you know, late third with, with the Boston pick, there's a, a couple of defensemen back there. We got, uh, put J- Jeremy put Poirier. Uh, I, I think he could be a great puck mover, uh, for the ducks. Uh, with, I, I really like, uh, with Willie Wall, Wallander too. Um, you know, he's, he's big, he's, he's a pretty good skater, uh, can, can jump into the rush kind of, uh, what, what the ducks, I guess, and every NHL team like to do now. Um, so those, those are a couple of guys I think, uh, they take a look at with, with that Boston pick. Okay. Um, going to throw a what if at you here, Lucas, where would you take Zegris in this year's draft class? If he hadn't gone in last year's draft class. Ooh. Uh, you know, I mean, I think he's, I think he could be right there with, uh, you know, but by field, uh, I wouldn't take him one, but um, I I think he could def he he would definitely be a top five pick in this year's draft, pro- probably more top three actually. Um, uh, you know, you you watched him at the World Juniors this year, um, just with his his vision and creativity and. Uh, you know, he had that one spinorama pass. Uh, I think he's just, uh, you know, a top-notch playmaker. Um, and that that's so good that I think his shooting is kind of underrated. Um, he, he does have a, a really good shot. Um, it's just, you know, so good at distributing that he kind of uh, leans on that a little more. But... Um, I take him in my top three this year. So throwing this out at you, call up the rival Kings and offer them Zegras for the number two pick. Who says no? Oh, ah, uh, you know, for the number two pick, I, you know, watch the Kings have such so much depth in in their prospect pool right now, right and a ton of centers already. Um, you know, I, I think they could look at trading, you know, trading it for either moving back and, you know, another defenseman or, uh, you know, I, I just don't think that's what the Kings really need is a, a center. You know, they, Velarde seems to have, uh, healed fully from, you know, his back issues. Um, I mean, you never want to see anyone hurt. So I, I hope, uh, you know, he has healed. Uh, they took Alex Turcott last season. Uh, you know, they have guys like Anderson Dolan, Akil Thomas. Uh, they, they have a ton of centers coming up. So I, I, I could see them trading that pick back or, you know, for some kind of more immediate help right now, if if they wanted to, I go the other way. I think that they just double down on grabbing centermen. The Team Canada theory: you just 
you get the best players. If they all happen <laughs> to play center, you push them over to the wing and so be it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, they could go that way too. Like you know, if they already play center, it's a lot easier to transition to the, to the wing. Right. So, I mean, that's, that's not a bad theory to live by just, and then, you know, you can switch it up on a nightly basis. All right. You know, we're, we're playing, you know, team, team X who has big center. So we'll load up our big guns down the middle. So I, I, I like that. All right, Lucas, you successfully dodged my uh, fake trade proposal for the <laughs> Kings and Ducks there. Um, do you have anything to plug? Uh, no, I mean, you know, uh, if you uh, fo- follow me on Twitter, uh, I, I like to give away a lot of stuff. We just, I just ran, recently gave away uh, our new Dauber Prospects report. Um, I'm giving away my hockey collection cart, my hockey card collection. So, um, you know, give me a follow there and check it out and let's have some fun. Right on. And we'll look for your contributions in the Dauber Hockey Prospects Guide. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Lucas. Yeah, thanks for having me. Right on. Stay safe. You too. All right, everyone, that was our show, the Draft Lottery 2020 Blowout Edition. Stick tap to Tony Ferrari, Prashanth Iyer, and Lucas Main for coming on the pod. If you like what you listen to, please like, subscribe, and review wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll catch you in the next episode.